So, may we start? Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 275 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, matinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Well, that was certainly a year, huh? America watched its democracy come under attack from within. The world learned the hard way how a supply chain works. Some rich dudes went to space. And NFTs made it official that the world is more than prepared to give over money for nothing. Oh yeah, the pandemic kept on happening. We got scared, we got vaccinated, we were less scared, variants showed up, and now we're scared again. Tom Brady won another championship, the Olympics happened without any spectators, Taylor Swift sang about an X for 10 minutes, and Britney was finally freed. We said goodbye to Stephen Sondheim, Anne Rice, Colin Powell, Michael K. Williams, Charlie Watts, DMX, and Cicely Tyson. At the movies, after the studios took much of a year off, they decided to return to cinemas in 21. It was there that we finally learned that this was no time to die, that we thumbed through an issue of the French Dispatch, that we sang along with more musicals than we'd seen in a long, long time, and that we once again took the red pill and returned to the Matrix. Here on the show, when time comes to tie a year off, I cannot do it alone. As much as I've already been talking alone for quite some time, I call out Avengers Assemble and get Earth's Mightiest Heroes to join me for the mission at hand. And that is exactly what I've done today. First, from the West Side, the newest addition to this little team of ours, and yet a friend who has become very near and dear to this show and me personally, in very short order, Jolie Featherstone is here. How are you, Jolie Featherstone? I am well. I'm happier now that I'm here, so thank That's you. That's <laughs> wonderful. Welcome to the circus. Next, from the north side, a man who needs no introduction because he's been on the show so many bloody times, I have almost lost count, going into our second decade of friendship, the one-time proprietor of Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind, Bob Turnbull, is here. Say hello, Bob. Hey, Ryan. Good to be here. I'm, I'm appreciating the uh, the Rush beer today. It didn't come from you, but uh, I think that, of- I think you spoke to people who spoke to people who, who like got it under my tree. You're a man of quality taste, sir. Well, I'm a man of something. Finally, from the east side, one of the hardest working critics I know, she'll neuter your pet by day and then tell you at night why Tick Tick Boom is a masterpiece. She's my partner in crime when topic <laughs> turns to baseball, good gin, and so much more. Hillary Butler is here. Hello, Hillary Butler. Hello. How are you today? I am all right. Yes. I, you know, I'm, I'm back to working after a few days off. It's it's always that weird time in between Christmas and New Year's. And there's so many movies that I wanted to like jam in there before doing the show. I did not get time to get to them all. No, me either. So I'm sure you guys are going to bring up ones that I have yet to see. Yeah, actually. Oh, everybody's going to do that. Yeah, there's just <laughs> no time to get to all of them. I mean, to that end, it's kind of crazy because uh, the in the countdown that we're going to do, we've got um, 20 slots and we're going to be talking about 18 different films. So our tastes are quite diverse this year and it's going to make for uh, for some interesting conversation. As is tradition on the year-end show, there will be some music underpinning our conversation. The songs you hear are some of my favorite tracks of 2021. You'll hear tunes by The Weeknd, Casey Musgraves, Jasmine Sullivan, Lizzo, and more. If you find the music distracting, as I know some of you do, take a look into your feed. You will find a music-free version of the show, so you can listen to that and, uh, you know, do without the tunes. 
on episode 275, as I mentioned, we will be counting down our top five films of the year. And here's how this is going to work. We are going to go slot by slot. So each of us will name our fives, our fours, and so forth until we get to the top dot. Also, only once or twice, there will be a film that's going to be on more than one list. We will dig into it fully at its highest ranking. Before that, you'll, you might hear me either say a brief thought about it or even skirt right past it. But uh, enough gilding the lily. We must begin. And I have decided that we are going to begin with Miss Featherstone. Jolie, tell us about As in Heaven. I loved As in Heaven. And Ryan, actually, you were my kind of my inspiration behind seeing it. You had posted about it on Twitter. And it was already kind of on my shortlist. So I thought, okay, I'm prioritizing this one. Um, so I watched it as part of the digital screenings that TIFF was doing. Um, and even in like the home setting, perhaps it benefited watching this film, to be honest, even though it is so painterly and, and just visually gorgeous. There's something very kind of honest and, and very personal and intimate about this film that I think watching it at home was actually kind of a great place to see it. It's a debut feature film, if you can believe it. I couldn't, I think it's astounding. Um, it's directed by Tia Lindbergh. Um, and it's kind of a, a tale of grief, um, family, loss, and also sort of from a gendered perspective as well. I think it's just a gorgeous film. And again, hard to believe that it's a, a, a feature debut. To tell people what it's about, this is a film that it, it's really a very, very simple story. It's a film that takes place at the beginning of the last century uh, on a farm where a woman is giving birth to... I think I lost count. It's, it's it's at least her fifth child, maybe even her sixth or seventh child at the point where pregnancy is really dangerous and the, the birth is not going well and it becomes this push-pull of call the doctor, don't call the doctor. So we are, we and the children of this family are in a place where we don't normally go and it's astounding. Like this is a film that dares you to look away. And I think what's interesting as well about this film is that it's sort of told from the eldest daughter's perspective. Totally. Um, and sort of kind of go over a, a, a bit of the story, but not reveal too, too much. But as you said, Ryan, it is kind of a, it's a very simple, very human story and ultimately comes down to um, sort of questions of uh, family and of faith. And essentially the eldest daughter is witnessing her mother um, in kind of a health crisis as she's giving birth. Um, and the daughter sort of struggles with her sense of duty to her family, to the other children, um, the kind of social mores at the time. She's really in a kind of precarious position with her mom uh, in, in this crisis. Um, and ultimately it's sort of her really bargaining and negotiating with her grief, with God, with her, with her social situation, to be honest. Being told from the eldest daughter's perspective, it was, really such a, a an intimate position to watch this story happen and as you said takes you to places within within a family that we don't often get to see and kind of asks questions that maybe we privately ask but aren't often kind of put in such a in such a bold-faced way no, definitely as it does in this film. Bob or Hillary did either one of you see as in heaven I saw it at TIFF yeah it, it was it was excellent I, I agree with just everything Julie said um was really great at giving a sense of place and time because it's a very insular kind of community and you really i think got a good feeling as to what it would be like living in those times uh, as much as you could 
uh, given the subject matter. Uh, but it was beautiful, and I'd forgotten it was a first feature. I mean, that's still a, that's an even more remarkable statement about it. First features are getting more and more audacious as time goes on. Like as the tools that filmmakers are given are better and better with every passing generation, they are they are really handcuffed by nothing. Very good start. I love that, Julie. Good work. Uh, let's move to you, Bob. Uh, you've got a cartoon for us, Bob. Tell us about the Mitchells versus the Machines. Yeah, I know we're, we're moving from As in Heaven, which is this very <laughs> kind of serious look at a historical place and really talking about all those themes that Julie talked about to this, you know, kind of apocalyptic cartoonish version of the future, which is just so much fun. I watched it twice within a week. So I, I debated as to putting something else in my top five to mix it up a bit more. But I, I can't lie. I had so much fun with this movie. You know, the, the father character is actually in some ways the least interesting uh, of them, even though he's got so much of the screen time. But I just really enjoyed the rest of the family, the artwork, uh, the, the character development, the little films within the film, like, you know, the, the geek daughter creating those little sort of films. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was extremely clever in, in so many of the things it did and just laugh out loud funny. Um, it, it was one of the, yeah, it's probably the, the funniest movie I saw all year as well. Um, so I, I just can't deny how much fun I had with it. And, and if you haven't seen it, um, A, please do. Uh, B, it's really about the last family who is sort of free to battle this robot apocalypse that sort of came from, you know, if you've watched Don't Look Up, you know, the, the, uh, the mega corporations are looking to take over the world. So this is one case where the robots kind of went a little bit further than they expected to. And this is the one family that's left free to help save the rest of the world. And yeah, it just kind of goes. I think the thing I'll remember about that is that that dropped into March. That dropped right into the time where we were all really getting tired of being locked down again and inside again. And, and, and you know, we really just wanted to get out. And we really needed something bright and happy and warm and silly and but still so smart um you're right bob that that movie is a real love letter to creating cinema even like i've i've loved like seeing that that image turn up over and over on twitter of of the daughter you know presenting her av uh presentation with like cinema and uh, like the, we people have been dropping different things onto the screen um it's on netflix too like that's the good thing is that if anybody wants yeah, to catch yeah. up with this one there's gonna actually gonna that's gonna be a couple times in the course of this conversation um a film that netflix produced so it's right there in your tv even though i really would have loved to have seen this movie nice and big yeah and, and i i couldn't help do a little bit of the the uh relating a bit to my own child who's who's a you know a film geek as well studying at university and just having some of those kind of analogies in there and one additional kind of personal thing there's like this half second of animation at some point of the the mother character that i swear they got my wife the model for. there's like <laughs> half a second where she does something it's like oh my god it's exactly what my wife does so it's just those little additional things you know let the dark harvest begin <laughs> Uh, Jolie, Hillary, I'm sure you both saw this movie. I didn't actually see this movie. I don't watch a heap of animation, which I it's been on my list, even Hillary, though one of my movies like nice is things? animated. <laughs> it's, it's been on my list to watch, and I do need to get, get to it. I'm in the same boat as Hillary. I, I actually do love animated uh, films, short or, or feature length, and I tend to watch a lot. And this is one that the second it came out on Netflix, I put it on my list, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet but everyone i know has simply adored it so i need to i need to prioritize i mean it. that's that's one of the things i love about doing this show is that we've all had these you know, like we said like there's this rush at the end of the year to try to see as much as you can so you can kind of shape your opinion of the year 
And inevitably, like, you know, like some of us are even lucky enough to get stuff even sent to us, which is both a blessing and a curse because then there's more to go through. So by doing this and by bringing up titles like uh, As in Heaven and Mitchell's versus the Machines, uh, you know, I like I hope to steer the audience towards some of the ones that kind of bubbled up uh, above above the uh the phrase so thank you for that bob uh ladies you got uh you got some some good times ahead of you um speaking of good times hillary you are gonna uh you're gonna sing us a song uh about cages or wings tell us about tick tick boom (laughs) please don't make me sing on here i could but it's been a while so uh tick tick boom is really the story of jonathan larson who for those that don't know is the person that wrote the musical rent which had a massive impact on me in my teenage years, I think I was 17 when I first saw it. I think even if you aren't a lover of Rent, there's a lot to like in this movie. It's really propelled by this massively gorgeous performance by Andrew Garfield. He just kind of seemed to embody this man. And the fact that he had to basically spend the year before they filmed teaching himself to sing is also something that's pretty miraculous when you watch this this film. I found it was really... Uh, it was really well made. I liked that at the end too, they showed some really cool scenes of Jonathan Larson in kind of the same situations as Andrew Garfield. So you could kind of see like just how close they were together. The whole cast is also good. And I love that they also had Robin DeJesus in there as Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really, really great. He's not getting enough recognition, I don't think, at this part of the year. But uh, yeah, it was, it was just one of those films where I've watched it, I think three times now. <laughs> <laughs> just keep coming back to it. I guess I need to like make some room for Mitchell's versus the machines if I can make room to watch Tick Tick Boom three times. Yeah, it just really spoke to me and the, the music is kind of similar. It's just what you might expect from, from Rent, but um, or the person who wrote Rent, but it's also like quite different. Um, and there's there's some moments in there, not to spoil it, that are, are pretty great if you're a musical theater lover and nerd. <laughs> Jolie, Bob, Tick Tick Boom, either one of you? I have not yet seen it. It's on my list also, and I'm really <laughs> This is going to become a drinking game over the course of this episode. Um, I, I caught up with it. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I don't, I've never seen Rent. I don't know any of the music from it, so I, I'm you know, definitely not, a, uh, I guess, a theater nerd from that perspective. Um, so it took me a while to get into the movie because I'm not familiar with you know, Jonathan, I'm not familiar with the music or anything, but I did enjoy it. I'm not sure if it's a Lin-Manuel Miranda thing or not, but there, he's got um, a pace or a cadence to his movies that just appeals to me. And it's not that he's jumping around, but he managed to kind of pull me into to this character that I knew nothing about. And by the end, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. It's you know, not necessarily my, my, I don't want to say my style of music because that's not fair. Um, the, but you know the music didn't greatly appeal to me. But by the end of it, it was like, no, no, I, I'm actually enjoying the songs as well. So yeah, it was uh, thumbs up. Well, the cool thing about that is thinking about it that way because I was in the same boat as Hillary. We actually saw it together in a theater, no less, which now seems like the before times. Um, mm-hmm. We got to see it nice and big with a theater full of theater geeks, and. Um, you're Bob. You're actually going to see these things in the right order because Tick Tick Boom came first, and then Rent came after that. His career was startlingly short. Like he was he was dead by 35, as you learn at the top of this movie, and which kind of became part of the lore of Rent was that he created this seminal work. It was in the 90s what Hamilton is now. It was the kind of thing that just changed the approach to theater. It changed. Um, 
entire fandoms and and what they what they clung to and called their own. So if you haven't seen Rent Bob, uh, yeah, now that you've seen Tick Tick Boom, you can make that jump. It's very much a first draft to that masterpiece like you are going to see a lot of similarities in the songs um if you know there's there's a lot of songs that are almost kind of direct lifts but i mean nobody ever gave sondheim grief for that so we're not going to give jonathan Morris grief for that uh if you have any pointers to the best version of rent to see i don't know if there's a film <laughs> version of it or an, an on stage yeah yeah don't watch the movie movies. version Please. no yeah, yeah so. don't do that uh yeah the, the only the only thing i didn't love about the movie was towards the end there was a suddenly and then he was dead like it just really kind of <laughs> rushed towards that at the end, and I know the movie was very much about that specific period of time. Well, see, I loved the end. I loved it because okay. it's, it's all about presenting him the birthday cake and make a wish, and then before he gets a chance to do that, and before they even finish the song, it just goes to black. Yeah. And I kind of, cool. I yeah. kind of loved that. You know, even though we know what happens to him, inevitably, we, we don't get to see that next little thing finish and i kind of yeah. i kind of really appreciated that i also think like this this movie talks a lot about expectations both expectations that society puts on us because like his parents like by 30 had the mortgage and the two kids he talks about that in like one of the songs and he also had an expectation because sondheim already had a hit on broadway by the time he was 30 so he and actually when i was making some notes for today, I was like, oh, four out of the five films I picked are basically all about expectations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a Hollywood theme right now or if it's just something that I identify with these movies, but um, I, I found that to be interesting and, and spoke to me. Thank you, Hillary. Uh, tick, tick, boom. I, I did not get to do a whole episode about it this year, um, but uh, first of all, thank you for seeing it with me because that was a wonderful experience. And uh, thank you for bringing it up because uh, I, I love excuses to talk about Tick, Tick, Boom. That's probably been my most played soundtrack in a year where I've played a lot of soundtracks. My number five is one that I'm going to just skirt ahead a little bit because it also happens to be Jolie's number four. So we might as well talk about it together. So I get to take a pass and move us directly into the number fours right after this. All right, Miss Featherstone, you're back on the clock. Let's talk about Zola. Uh, I can talk about. I could talk a whole episode about. So Zola, could I. To be and, and we did. <laughs> Zola, for those who I, I'm not sure if everyone's super familiar with the story behind it, but it was a Twitter thread uh, posted, you know, by a user on Twitter that um, kind of went viral over the matter of a course of hours one evening, and I actually remember that thread coming up in my newsfeed and 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 reading the, in, in the entirety of the thread. Um, and I was glued to it when I initially read it. And then when I found out they were making a film, I was quite excited, um, especially when I saw that um, Janixa Bravo um, is the director of the film. And I thought she did an incredible job with this story, the way that she sort of blends the physical, the cultural, the digital, the cinematic. Um, it all comes together in such an engaging, um, excellently paced story. Um, it's also quite a shorter film compared to a lot of the films we're seeing these days that are like two hour minimum. Um, it's quite quick, um, 
And yet I found that I was kind of glued to the screen from beginning to end. Even though I'd read the thread, I, I kind of knew what to expect. I thought she put it together so brilliantly. Hillary, Bob, Zola. I didn't see it. I'm being I'm being <laughs> so awful with everyone else's like picks. I haven't seen them. We'll get there. I'm sure I'll, you'll hit the jackpot. It's Hillary's world. Actually. We all just live here. I'm mixed on it, to be to be honest. Uh, um, stylistically, wow. Uh, like, I, I have to dig into the rest of Janixa Bravo's um, work. I, I know Criterion Channel had a whole bunch of her short films. I, I would love to see them. I didn't have any knowledge of the backstory. I knew that there was about a Twitter that I, I didn't know about at the time. It's not just that I didn't like the characters. I didn't, I didn't really care about them. And maybe that's more on me than anything, but I didn't really find a way into into the people. Uh, the style was amazing. The story certainly went all over the place. But, you know, which and I mean that in a good way. Um, but I just didn't care about the characters too much. So I just I couldn't really hang my hat anywhere with with the story. At the very least, I mean, uh, again, I enjoyed it. It's good point, Julie, too, about that. Not only was the film, you know, a, a reasonable length, it flew by. Oh yeah, like it just zoomed right by. Even if I didn't care about the characters that much, man, that was you know, I, I didn't wander. My attention did not wander from this movie. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to find another filmmaker that I need to uh, look into. I feel the same way about uh, Janixa Bravo. I just stylistically, I was, I, I loved it. I, I just adored every second, uh, every frame visually of watching that film. Um, so I also have have to make a point to watch some of her short films as well. The characters are, are quite, quite interesting. I certainly, I think, you know, being so focused on um, Zola's character, I, I, I found, of course, we we're kind of empathizing with her and rooting for her. Whereas the the other <laughs> the other cast of characters are really, really um, interesting people that kind of test your tolerance with them. What what Zola is even sort of forced to endure with all of these characters as well. So yeah, it's quite it's quite the journey that they take together. It's always it's an interesting question to ask when you're watching a movie like that as to, okay, I don't like these characters, but do I find them interesting? Is there something that I wanna, you know, either see their arc or is there some compelling facet to them and I think that's what I was wrestling with. I'm with Jolie that was what drew me in is these are people who are just trying to pay the bill and the reality is if that is what you're doing you know your options are probably a lot more limited and you are the kind of person who will strike up a fast friendship and go on a road trip because somebody says you can if you come with me you can make 25 grand over the course of the weekend and it's like you know what 25 grand is going to go a very very long way in my life so yeah i will get into the back of this suv with you weird little stranger and your two and your two stranger friends and we will drive across the country and you know strip in this shady little place that you say i can make twenty five thousand dollars even though i walk into this place i'm like nope it's just it's so full of the reality of the hustle i've grown this affinity to liking non-christmas christmas movies like movies that have big pieces that take place at Christmas time, but are not about Christmas. So like, you know, movies like Carol, movies like, uh, you know, Die Hard, obviously, Parks of Being a Wallflower. One of those now is Hustlers. But Hustlers is all about them targeting the rich uh, Johns, right? Like the rich customers. Mm -hmm. Zola is like the complete ass opposite of that, where they are targeting <laughs> the people who are looking for sex work like on Craigslist and just mm -hmm. taking like, you know, $20, $50, $100, that kind of thing. And there's actually even a conversation 
in the middle of Zola about that, which I love because you don't have that conversation where um, Zola says, how much did you just make turning a trick with that guy? It's a low number. It's like 75 bucks. And Zola says to her, she's like, are you kidding? Pussy is worth hundreds at least. What are you doing? Why are you just short selling yourself like that? And you you don't actually think about like the economics of sex work, especially at that level. It's again, the kind of thing you don't like you were saying with as in heaven, the kind of thing you don't see on screen. You see it in Zola. I thought that scene was so fascinating because certainly the prices that were set, the very low ones were set sort of by that um, extremely, uh, you know, kind of aggressive, sort of like, we don't know whether to trust him or not, the guy that uh, the, the friends are running with. Um, he, set those pri- he sets those prices, uh, whereas Zola kind of takes matters into her own hands. Is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you can be charging way more and helps this girl recreate her profile um, and charge a, a more accurate price. So there's all, also those mechanics. Uh, Stephanie was the character's name that we were looking for, played by Riley Keough. Right. Um, X by Coleman Domingo, the pimp of the group in one of the performances of the year. Uh, people need to see this movie. Let's talk for a moment <laughs> about nobody. About nobody. <laughs> well, so this sort of probably ties into what my theme is. I think for my top five, each one of these I've got kind of a, a personal attachment to for some reason. Some part of the movie just either appealed to me or my family, like I already mentioned that in Mitchells and the Machines. This one, it's some nondescript white guy who's got one kid and a wife, and, uh, you know, the title kind of says a lot. That's how he feels. Like, I'm not saying that's exactly me, but, you know, you can relate to that somewhat. The show just took um, a turn. But, but here's a, another movie that I, I had a lot of fun with. I mean, it is very violent at times. But Bob Odenkirk uh, just really kind of carries off this transition of what you think is a nobody, kind of meek, mild-mannered, um, you know, middle-aged man into, if not a superhero, somebody who can, you know, defend himself in ways that you can't even imagine or think of. Um, I thought it was extremely clever in some of the setups and the way they paid off and even a scene like a, um, a, the fight they had on the bus where he eventually gets thrown out of the bus through a window by this, I think, group of five or six young strapping lads. And he goes back in. He goes back into the bus to finish off the fight. (laughs) He dusts himself off, pulls the glass out of his skin, walks back in and finishes off the fight. Things like that and some actually really kind of clever pieces of dialogue. And and I'm going to go blue just for a second. My favorite line of dialogue of the year is... Give me the goddamn kitty cat bracelet, motherfucker. <laughs> Maybe that's not clever, but the way that was used in the movie. Um, he says it with panache. He does. And, and it, it added to his character. It made me laugh out loud. And was also said in a very serious tone that if I had that kitty cat bracelet, I would have given it to him immediately. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was innovative in the way they staged a lot of the fights. It was exciting. Christopher Lloyd was in it. Connie Nielsen was in it. Michael Ironside, I mean, come on, that's that's a great cast right there. So I had a ton of fun with this movie. And it was a reasonable length of time as well. It, it's funny because it's kind of informed by a bunch of other movies. Like, it's somewhat John Wick-ish. It's somewhat Equalizer-ish. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's that unassuming person just happens to be a badass and you don't really expect it. What I liked about it was 
you 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 feel for the guy for like the position that he's put himself in like he this is the guy who has to chase after the garbage truck every single week because they're always early or they're always like leaving like before he can get his bin out um you know when he when he goes to bed at night his wife has like created this barrier of pillows in between them on the bed there's all these little his you know his his kid barely looks at him there's all these little things but you realize it's like this is the persona that he has built for himself like in reality he's actually quite a badass but he can't draw attention to himself for all kinds of reasons so he's just turned himself into this schmuck and done it so convincingly that nobody thinks that that he he has it in him to um to win a fight his home at one point like what really sets the, the the wheels in motion is the house gets broken into and when that happens like he's basically emasculated in this fight like the 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 crooks who don't know what they're doing just basically kick his ass because he lets them but you know his wife looks at him just that little bit more and his son looks at him just that little bit more and it's like this is the line he's like i can be a schmuck but I'm not going to be like that kind of a schmuck. So like we're done. Yeah, that, that's that's a hard scene to watch because his son, I think, actually says, you know, when the cops show up, Dad, you could have taken. Yeah. Me. And the cop is like, No, 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 it's, it's okay. You know, we understand. Oh, I had to been my family. And you, oh, you just feel so yeah. bad for him. And then you know, as the movie continues, you're like, Oh yeah, he definitely could have taken those guys. Yeah, Hillary, let us talk about Flea. Yeah, so this is my animated film. See, I do watch animation. There you go. In ways that you wouldn't expect to be animated, I guess. So I saw Flea through Sundance in January, and I guess didn't really stop thinking about this movie for the entire year, because it was just so well done and, and just so original in the way it presented the story, which basically was a guy who had this friend who is called Emin in the film, but that's not his real name. Uh, they needed to protect his identity, which is one of the reasons why it's animated. Um, but he had this friend for 25 years. He lives in uh, Denmark and never really knew how his friend, who is from Afghanistan, got to the country. So it's basically him interviewing his friend and his friend telling this very compelling refugee story about how he finally got to Denmark. In the use of animation, they do intersperse some real world, like news footage and that sort of thing of the war going on in Afghanistan. Um, but most of it is, is all told through an animated perspective, which allows us to visualize things that we wouldn't have been able to visualize had they tried to tell it in like a, a real person way. Um, and it, it said that, that also helped to protect his identity. Um, because they needed to for the movie. And the way that it ends, the ends like frame of this movie, if you're not crying, they don't think you're human. <laughs> so I found it to be to be really, really uh, moving. Jolie, Bob, Flea? I have not yet seen it, unfortunately. <laughs> Sadly, I've not caught up with it. I'm, I'm so eager to see it from everything I've heard. It, it feels, you know, I've heard a lot of it. as the Waltz of Bashir, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Although I'm, I know it stands on its own, but no, I have not had a chance. I saw some brush strokes of Persepolis. Like it takes a it takes a different animated tone than Persepolis does. Animation is not a genre. Like you hear that said quite a lot. A animation, anime, they are not a genre. It is a style and there are so many different things that you can do with it. So here, like Waltz with Bashir, that's actually a really good comparison, Bob. You have this film that could be considered 
one of the best documentaries of the year, one of the best films, full stop, as Hillary is mentioning it, one of the best international pictures, and one of the best animated films. Mm -hmm. Like it fits into all of these boxes where it is definitely at the top of the class um, because of the style that it has chosen to use. And that style makes an unsavory story accessible. Like, I don't know about you guys, but mm -hmm. I'm noticing that a lot of people, if you tell them that it's a story about refugees or you tell them it's a story about slavery or you tell them it's a story about human rights, they're like, oh, I don't want to do my homework. You know, I don't want to eat my vegetables. I, I, I know, I get it. It's like, but we don't really, you know, we don't know what people go through before they happen to land on our beach or you know or at our border and if we did if we really did we probably would think about things quite differently and yeah like you said hillary flea uses the medium to its advantage because it is able within scope to recreate these harrowing moments or these just heartbreaking moments at times where a teenager a kid is put into a moment of indecision just completely alone in the middle of nowhere. And sometimes the middle of nowhere is still a very busy airport. Your heart just breaks for them, for what they go through, and then they're still met with more resistance through a great deal of their life. His story didn't just end when he got to Denmark. Yeah. They, they did also kind of focus a lot on the psychological trauma that his story kind of forced upon him and how that affected his relationships and everything moving forward. Um, and they did it all in 90 minutes. So <laughs> there you go. I think we're finding the theme for your selections. <laughs> My number four for this year uh, was a film that I saw back at the beginning of the year and really just stuck with me. Um, I think it's it, like really and truly, I think it's actually a film from a year or two ago, but just because of the way the world went, it didn't actually like enter our lives proper until this year. Um, directed by Shatara Michelle Ford, um, a movie called Test Pattern. Did any of you guys catch up with this one? I did. I, I saw one. See, I told you, you eventually. <laughs> just on a long enough timeline, we get there. Exactly. Um, Test Pattern. I think my common theme of the year was my, my, my films had a lot to say about identity. Um, both within a person and within um, a relationship. And this is the story of um, a mixed-race couple. Um, it's a, Again, it's a short story. Hillary, there we go. We got that going on for it. Um, but it's this, this story is kind of intense. Like, there's a lot of moments in this movie where you kind of want to look away and just turn it off and, and walk because it's just getting too much. Um, the movie, it, it's about this... Um, this lovely couple, um, he is a tattoo artist. She works for um, like humane society type uh, animal shelters, uh, Evan and um, Renisha. And they, you know, we, we meet them when they're first just getting together. And then we kind of skip ahead and they've made a go of it. And they're this loving, wonderful, like not very much bells and whistles kind of couple. But there's a lot of warmth there. And when we kind of like jump into the present, um, she goes out one night with one of her girlfriends because her girlfriend wants to celebrate. And while she's out, she gets sexually assaulted. And the crux of the film is the next morning, um, them running around from pillar to post in small town America, trying to get a rape kit done. On the surface, that should just that that, that should be like a twenty minute movie, really. But they they keep meeting resistance 
because of just the way the healthcare system is set up down there and how um, you know reporting of sexual assault is set up down there. But it never loses its love. It never loses its warmth. You can see how much he's trying to do and at the same time how often he's actually overdoing it. It turns into something beautiful. It turns into something intense, indelible, but really, really tender um, because this is a guy who... You know, his 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 partner one time told him, when I tell you to be there, you're going to be there. And he has never forgotten that. And sometimes that doesn't always go his way. Um, yeah, Test Pattern. I love that movie so much. Test Pattern was really interesting, like, from a woman's perspective. There's so many times when you're forced to relive something you might not want to relive. And this poor woman has to go around to all these different places. And every time you can see it, like, tearing her down, that she has to, like, tell them why she's there and like do it all over again that was really affecting to watch yeah that that feeling of empathy the movie creates in you is kind of astounding it is so frustrating to watch in in the best way possible i guess that you're learning about these people in that situation that it's just like oh my goodness do you feel for her but what i really also like about the movie too is that it um it lets the audience kind of figure things out. It doesn't have to spell out a lot of the you know, plot details. There, there's moments of kind of like I'm not quite sure what may have happened there, but I trusted the film. I trusted the film to kind of fill that in or let me fill it in. And from that point of view, I thought it that helped tell its story so much better without having to get into the nitty gritty of like and then this happened, this happened. You were just able to kind of um, dive into the empathy for these characters. It's just like you know, just look. Just, you know, forget about what's actually ha- like going on in the plot and just look at this person and and just take them in in this moment. Again, like we were saying with As in Heaven, these moments that you're not normally privy to. You know, you are not normally sitting there in the hospital waiting room while a couple is waiting for a rape kit to get done. So, yeah, it puts us in this place that we're, you know, hopefully people don't go through this, um, you know, and if they have, they see themselves. Um, but if they haven't, they get an idea as to what these people go through. That was my number four. I was really, really happy that I was able to catch up with Test Pattern. We are going to take a very quick break and we will come back in just a second with our number threes. All right, Miss Featherstone, you're back on the clock. It's time to start the threes. Tell us. Man, he, he's timing you here, clock. Tell us about the electrical life of Louis Wayne. I don't even know where to start with this film. <laughs> the layers of how this film really kind of on a personal level resonated with me. I felt that it, in some strange universe it was kind of a personal letter written to me to sort of help me get through this year and um (laughs) the director will sharp um you know i just think he brings such a unique and kind of fresh eye um i i watching this film i got some julie taymore vibes um in in a really wonderful beautiful quirky charming melancholic kind of way um, and for, for those that haven't seen it, it is sort of a sort of dramatized 
bi uh, biopic of the artist and inventor Louis Wayne. Very compassionate in how it handles his story. The story really does deal with um, as charming and fun and kind of whimsical as it is. It also deals with grief and mental illness. Um, and I think that the film does balance balance both of them in, a, in an appropriate way. And I, I do feel that Will Sharp and um, Benedict Cumberbatch in the lead role, Blue Wayne, brought a lot of care and compassion to telling his, his story. So the film personally really resonated with me and um, I thought was a, a really uh, wonderful, wonderful film. Hillary, Bob. I saw this at TIFF. Um, and I took my, my partner, who is a cat lover, um, because it has a lot of cats in it. Um, I had no idea who Louis Wayne was before I saw this movie and didn't know about his illustrations of cats and things like that. I loved the first half of this movie. I found it hard to get on board once the more psychedelic kind of visuals started to happen because I just didn't see it fitting with the period piece that was so lovingly constructed in the first half. And Claire Foy, by the way, uh, also very good in the first half of the movie. Uh, wonderful. But uh, yeah, it was it was one of those things where I was like, eh, it was okay. <laughs> the cats were super cute. Um, oh, and also there's a really good voiceover. I forgot about this part. That is done by Olivia Colman, wow. which again, for the first half of the movie, is utilized so well that it makes the film so charming, and then it just kind of drops off, and we don't hear from it again. I mean, she also did the, uh, I guess the voiceover, it was one of the characters in uh, Mitchell's Versus the Machines, so... Oh, well, there you go. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, now I have to. It's on the top of my list now. Psychedelia and cats. It's basically my vibe. <laughs> it's my aesthetic right there. It's been a long <laughs> lockdown, has it, Jolie? Um, <laughs> it was one that was making the rounds around these parts uh, during TIFF, but... Um, you know, TIFF these days, I've got my demographic and I and I work with it and it's been rewarding. Uh, I, I, I know I, I love the Cumberbatch, really. Um, anything he's in, I'm usually interested. I have not caught up. And I mean, you know, this is a cat house. So really, I've got no excuse. Um, so this is my <laughs> turn to be all apologetic and get in touch with my inner Bob. See what I did there? Thank you, Jolie. I will make Electrical Life of Louis Wayne a priority. Um, all right, Bob, this is another movie I, I have not seen and I really should have now because this is one of my boys. Tell us about No Sudden Move. Well, that's the thing. It's uh, Steven Soderbergh. I am uh, an unabashed Steven Soderbergh uh, fanboy. And, and I guess that's that's where that personal thing comes in, is that I love his restless experimentation. You know, the fact that he, he took a break from filmmaking, we all thought maybe he was done, and then he just went, no, no, I was just trying some other stuff, and I'm going to bring that back, what I do now. And, and even though this isn't necessarily a, oh my god, he's really stretching the bounds of filmmaking, there's lots of interesting things he brings to this, whether it's the anamorphic lenses that have that kind of, you know, uh, um, kind of squishing on the side, uh, the way that, you know, as a heist film, it, it doesn't go the direction you think it will, as, as many heist films do, I guess, but it really doesn't go the direction you think it will. And just, again, he stacks this with a cast that is huge and amazing and great. And I, I just enjoyed the crap out of this film because I didn't know where it was going. Um, I, I like the way that he, as always, uh, plays with editing, with tone, with cinematography, with everything. And those are all those things that just help make the film better. But you, at the core, you need a good story, too. And as a heist film, it's good. It's, it's solid. I think any of the reviews I read kind of went, you know, this isn't his best film, this this isn't the best heist film, etc, etc. 
I'd probably agree with that, but does that doesn't lessen how much I was invested and engaged with this movie and just really enjoyed the crap out of it. Um, but I'll talk about Soderbergh any day of the week because I just think as a filmmaker, he's somebody who's just interested in the art form. And, and I, I love that about him, whether it's how he uses sound, how he uses the camera, how he directs his actors. Um, I think he's one of the most interesting filmmakers we've got in the last couple of decades. All right, so Bob, set, set me into the right headspace when I finally do get into this. And I really, really cannot believe that six months of this year went by and I didn't sit down and, and, ch- and properly chase it down given my fandom i'm watching this movie i gotta be thinking of which other soderbergh movie to get myself prepped if you were double featuring this with one of his other movies it goes with i might throw out of sight there just because that's one of his earlier perfect uh, quote-unquote heist movies uh, but but it's not that oh. it's certainly not that at all what are you doing to me? um but I, I think it'd be a nice kind of comparison of the two different ways that he's, he's approaching the heist vibe so it's like out of sight, but not? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a period kind of thing. It's like 50s, I, I think. I'm forgetting okay. the time. The time set in Detroit. So he, he's adding a bunch of other things in there. Class and race issues work its way and weave into the story. Um, and, you know, you got your you got your Don Cheeto. So you got Brendan Fraser. Come on. You get Del Toro, Amy Simons, who I really, really like as both an actress and, and as a filmmaker. Uh, Julia Fox, Kieran Culkin, you know, come on, the, okay. it's, it's a great Sold. cast. Uh, yeah, there you go. I don't need something on that. Hillary Jolie. No, I I did see it. I actually was really excited for it. I I like Soderbergh. I love Brendan Fraser <laughs> coming as a surprise to no one. Um, and uh, and of course the cast is incredible. Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro, Kieran Culkin, like the list goes on and on. I personally found it a little. I think at the midway point, a little convoluted at times. I feel like it kind of got got a little slow at, at a point there. Um, and then it, it was weird, like the beginning and ending, sort of the, the beginning and ending thirds, I felt moved at a really great pace. And they were sort of like in the middle, I, I thought it got a little murky, but um, overall it was a really well done film. And and like you said, say Bob Soderbergh, I think is just someone that really um, enjoys cinema and enjoys uh, experimenting and trying and playing with things um, like whether it's visually or, or with the audio even with like the, the tone and the performances so yeah I, I, I did really uh, enjoy it and it was again the cast is incredible so you know it, it's it's worth a watch for sure yeah I think it's a fair comment about the, the murkiness of the, the middle part of the film um, I think that's something that I, that I actually kind of like this like I, I don't I don't quite understand what's going on right now. That I will, or that he'll lead me there or allow me to get there. And, and I, I think I did in the end. I'm not actually sure if I got all the details, but I think that was one of the aspects I liked. But that, that's, a, that's a fair comment about it for sure. I thought the ending was fantastic. I thought it had a really interesting, really good ending. Thank you for that, Bob. Hillary, you are up next. Um, talking about a film that some people love and some people hate. Let's talk about Spencer. I feel like Spencer has been talked about a lot, so I don't know that I need to go has too far into it. Has it really? Yeah, no. well, not, not out here, but I feel like I feel like my list has largely been been chatted about in the, the grand scheme of things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Spencer it tells the story of uh, Princess Diana, who's played by Kristen Stewart in this, like, crazy embodiment of her that she does. The movie, uh, which is directed by Pablo Lorraine, is is beautiful. Um, it 
has wonderful costuming. Johnny Greenwood does a soundtrack, or the score rather, I should say. Um, and that's one of three scores that he did this year because he also did Power right. of the Dog and also Licorice Pizza, which I didn't know until I looked him up late earlier today. <laughs> so um, I also really loved how this movie did concentrate and make it all her story. You don't even see another member of the royal family for I think like the first 30, 40 minutes of this film. And uh, you know, there's a line in it where um, She's talking about the media. Um, they're talking about, you know, people trying to take photos of her. And she says the lenses are more like microscopes. And I feel like this film kind of embodied that because it really just pared everything down and just kind of really focused on her story. And I mean, talk about Christmas films that aren't Christmas films. This is one of them. Again, if, if following my theme, I guess, of expectations is just about how those expectations that the royal family has of her that she has of herself, that society as a whole has on her, have really oppressed her and caused her to be so bloody miserable. That tale of expectation and trying to figure out how you fit in that really spoke to me. And Kristen Stewart's just great. I really, really liked it. It was similar to Jackie in some ways and that sort of very claustrophobic nature of the, the lens kind of crowding her. I didn't enjoy Jackie that that much, but I thought Spencer worked. Me either gangbusters um, in, in creating the world that was just so crunched around her, the mood. Uh, you know, a lot of people compare it to a bit of a horror film. I thought it was a great portrayal. I mean, the little I know about Diana Spencer is kind of like, oh man, that, uh, you know, a, a hellish life, which is a weird thing to say about somebody who's obviously born in privilege, but her life turned into kind of a, kind of a nightmare, a bit of a waking nightmare. And I think it was really effective mm -hmm. at kind of getting that across. If you told me uh, 10 years ago that I would be sitting here waxing on and on about how Kristen Stewart has turned into one of my favorite <laughs> actors, I would have said you were crazy and that you've been drinking too much of the Rush beer. I, yeah, every film that woman does, whether it's Personal Shopper or uh, Happiest Season or Clouds of Sils Maria or even something like Charlie's Angels, I am always excited <laughs> to watch her work. She's got to this place where she can just be choosy and do only the stuff that excites her. And she has just been cranking out these incredible performances that are always so full of nuance. Like the temptation to do an imitation in this in this role must have just been off the charts. Like here is a woman who was very much like Jackie in, in Pablo's other movie, who was just so very captured by, by the media of its time, right? Like everybody knew her cadence, everybody knew her posture, you know, you could not turn on a TV in the 80s or 90s without seeing Diana within, you know, a few hours. So we knew, we, you know, we, we have this very, very clear image of what Diana Spencer was like. So it's like, okay, how do you go and do that and not just make it an impression and make it your own? And Kristen Stewart d does that incredibly well. I found the movie on the whole a tiny bit cold, which I think is by design um, because it's, it's supposed to um, drop you into this place of isolation and alienation. You know, I don't always like going there, <laughs> but especially when we are already in places of isolation and alienation. More than anything else, like the performance is just top notch watching her, whether she's speaking opposite one of her helpers, one of her assistants who like pulls out the clothes. Like, it's, it's incredible to see just like 
how far a person like that can get thrown from their comfort zone just by an assistant getting switched out. And that is one of the first things that happens in this movie versus like how she talks to her kids, certainly how she talks to her, you know, her in-laws. It's an incredible performance in a pretty darn good movie that's got a lot of amazing things going on. And Sally Hawkins plays one of mm-hmm. her aides, one of the, the people that, that dresses her and man, she's, she's good too. Yeah. My number oh, three no. though, I am surprised as hell that this came up on none of your lists. I can only imagine that this was like everybody's number six because otherwise I have no excuse for any of you. My number three um, was the new film this year by Celine Sciamma. It's uh, Petit Maman. Uh, her follow-up film to um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Bob, I know you've seen this. Hillary, I know you've seen this because we talked about it on the TIFF wrap-up show. See, I remember this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Lee Featherstone, did you catch up with Petit Mama? I have not yet, unfortunately. I, I believe in talking about it in ways that leave the crux of it to be discovered. You know, the core of this movie is not what I'd call a twist, but the core of this movie is something that is best just discovered on its own um, especially because this movie was sold that way without giving away too much. I didn't know what, what I was going to be getting into after Portrait of a Lady on Fire that became like one of my all-time favorite movies just two tips ago. Where do you go after a masterpiece? Well, if you're Celine Sciamma, you go small, you go intimate, you go personal, and you tell a story of death and grief and family, and you examine the role of parents and children in death and grief you know jolie you got us started by talking about a movie where a mother and a daughter are are brought into an experience that they're maybe not meant to share this is that kind of movie where a mother and a daughter are brought together in grief when a child is both not entirely old enough to understand everything that's going on but old enough to understand a lot of what's going on and how the roles of parents and children can change during grief and during death And it all leads to something that in the wrong hands could seem so gimmicky and so cliche, but in the hands of a maestro like Celine Sciamma is just... I do love how she is so well able to tell these stories of female relationships. Obviously, this one is very different (laughs) than Portrait of Lady on Fire. And this is why, you know, diversity in filmmaking is so important, right? Because you wouldn't get this sort of story told. It was a beautiful movie and very short. Um, Extremely short. Extremely short. I think it's like 80 minutes. Don't go to the bathroom. You're going to miss a whole thing. Um, I also love how she doesn't use a lot of music. Yeah. Yeah, There's like two songs. She lets the story and her actors who are wonderful like child actors right away basically emote for her she doesn't seem to feel the need to have that music embellish um, the emotion that she should be feeling she lets the audience interpret that on her own on their own and i i like that i loved it i loved it too um I, I think I didn't put in my top five because Ryan, I want to give that to you because I, I, I know that was one of your, <laughs> your top ones for Tim. Uh, also, I think this portrait, uh, I just absolutely love portrait, and you know, it's not it's not fair to compare anything to that. So I, you know, it's it's going to be I don't want to even say a step down, but you know, I it, it just can't compare to that. Uh, but it's it's such a wonderful representation of like a child's view of their parents to a certain extent, and, and that whole kind of relationship thing. The, the two young girls are 
just so charming in that when they're making the pancakes i think it is uh, that's like <laughs> one of the scenes of the year just it's almost a documentary at that point and i guess some people would think that as banal i thought it was just overwhelmingly charming and beautiful uh and i, I think you make a really good point hillary is that that's why you need the different voices because i, I think it's got a very unique lens on this every single one of her films i love every single one of her films that's that's actually exactly what I was going to bring up is, you know, we're now five features deep into her career. And even though every single story that she's told has been a story about women, she has not told the same story twice. You know, she has mm-hmm. not gone to the same class. She has not gone to the same community. She's like, there are so many stories yet to be told even once let alone going back over and telling you know tell it from a different perspective after after a film like portrait of a lady on fire she could have done anything she could have gone and done you know a three-hour corset epic if she wanted to but she's like no i've got this idea for a small film with a cast of like six i think maybe even that's grandiose um that all takes place in this one little one little corner um, and it's perfect, and I loved it so much. And, and yeah, I, I knew that like everybody here who had seen it uh, really, really cared for it. So I guess I was just happy that I could be the one person to bring it up, and we could talk about it for for some time. She does the three hour costume epic. I am so there, right? Right. No matter what she does next, I'll be there. All right. Well, that is our threes. We are going to take a short break now, and we will come back in just a second and talk about our number two slots right after this. I saw the fire in your eyes We're back. It's Jolie Featherstone, Hillary Butler, Robert Turnbull. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Matinee Cast 275. We're summing up the year 2021. Something of a tenuous year. Good year in some ways. Shitty year in a lot of other ways. We are counting down our top five films of the year, and we have reached the uh, runner-up position for each of us. Uh, Jolie Featherstone, your turn has arrived again. Let us talk about the opus that is Dune. <laughs> yes, um, so Denise Villeneuve's, um, I think, portrayal of Herbert's Dune. Um, you know, I think previously there was definitely a notion of th- that book being sort of unfilmable. Um, and Villeneuve, in my opinion, proves that to, to be untrue um, in the way that he does. His films are, and Dune is no exception, are so minimalist yet so grand in scale. Um, and that really gets put to the test, I think, in Dune. Um, from the from the cinematography, the kind of like the art design and the set design, all the way to the score. The score, I think, is incredibly um, powerful and high intensity. Um, overall, I found Dune to be like a very sensory experience. Um, coming to the to, to the audio, the visuals, I left it feeling um, quite exhilarated, feeling as if I'd been on this other planet with them. Um, it's it, it's incredibly powerful. I think he did an excellent job with the world building um, and sort of building the, this, this, these cultures and these characters within this world. Um, Certainly, I think Arrival and, and Blade Runner 2049, the, the scale that he brought to those films, um, 
led led to him being able to so successfully bring Dune to the screen. It was funny because I, I had just talked with Bob about Dune before you came on because I just watched it on Christmas Day and then was heartbroken I hadn't seen it in the theater. Um, as much as he was trying to get people to go to the theater to see it and I wanted to, the timing just didn't work. Um, mm. But I really wish I'd experienced that, that bagpipe soundtrack. Bagpipes are underutilized in soundtracks. I disagree. <laughs> Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer used them, um, <laughs> but no, it was it, it was so well done. Um, this actually uh, was a late entry to I think my top ten of the year as well. Um, and to your point, uh, you know his world building was exceptional. Um, I knew nothing about Dune. I didn't know. I don't know about the books. I haven't seen the original uh, Lynch version of this uh, saga. So, it, and it was explained so well that I didn't have any questions through the entire thing, which I find is very unusual for some of these big sci-fi sagas. I'm usually like, Mike, what does that mean? <laughs> um, halfway through the movie. And it was just so immersive. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. And it was the third movie we watched on Christmas day. And I was the most enthralled with that movie. Bob? I have not had a chance to catch up. What? I have seen what? the David Lynch. I, I have seen the David Lynch version. Um, <laughs> so, so with Dune, I mean, I tried reading the book years and years ago, and I, I, I just never got into it for for whatever reason. I, I just couldn't get past like the first chapter or so. I didn't love the David Lynch movie. Uh, it, it, it's it's its own thing. Uh, it's lynching in some ways and just really goofy in others. Um, so I wasn't really, you know, um, chomping at the bit to, to see this. And I wanted to see in the theaters too, like, like Hillary was saying. So I've just kind of held off a bit. Also knowing that uh, it's part one and it just kind of like ends. It's like, I, I, I like complete stories in my movies for the most part, uh, that is. So I haven't been itching. I, I do want to see it. I just haven't uh, made a huge effort to go see it just yet. No, that, that, that's totally fair. And I, I will say, if it if anyone's interested, it is coming to the Cinesphere very soon. Ooh, might already be playing there. That's where I wanted um, to see it. That I was super lucky, and I got to see it at the Cinesphere. And it, I would highly recommend it. Oh, I want to go again. I'm, if COVID's not terrible, I'm going again <laughs> <laughs> to see it in the Cinesphere. Um, it, yeah, it was exceptional in, in the Cinesphere. I've actually seen it twice, both in theaters, um, both IMAX though, um, and the second time I saw it, I sort of went into it wondering if I would, if if the kind of sensory like exhilaration of it would be lessened after having seen it, and for me it didn't at all. In fact, I, I, I felt just as immersed the second time around, um, and uh, yeah, it, it still blew me away the second time around, but I, I would encourage you, if things are safe, um, to see it on the big screen if you can. So my relationship with Dune has been checkered. Would be a would be a, a good way to put it. Um, you know, this th these movies we really, really, really should be considering them in a box. Um, just you know, what happens when we go into that dark room and that bright wall lights up? Unfortunately, it's getting harder and harder to just live in that box. And outside of that box, we get conversations like this film must be seen in a theater, otherwise you are missing. Or if you care about seeing the sequel, you should go out and support part one, etc., etc., etc. And there was just so much of that around Dune. 
gave me this gross taste in my mouth before the film even arrived. Um, Denis Villeneuve is a filmmaker who I have adored for a long, long, long time. And I know that there are people who are ride or die with Arrival, but y'all late. Because he had this incredible career here in Canada before Hollywood snatched him up, which is kind of what Hollywood does to Canadian talent. And then they're, they're done. They're out of the Canadian system and they are never going to make films like Encendie again or films like Polytechnique again and Canada is lesser for it and the world is lesser for it and Denis Villeneuve is one of those guys his fans have become very very feverish in what seems like a very short amount of time it's hard to watch his movies in a box and just go and let them play and that was exactly what happened to Dune Dune came out and I was like I'll see it you know like I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't like running to catch it on opening day or anything like that. I wasn't like boycotting it or anything like, or anything to that extent. But by the time it dropped, I was just so worn out with the conversation that his fans had fueled that, um, you know, other critics had fueled and that Villeneuve had dealt because he'd spoke up a few times about how he wanted his film considered and how he wanted his film presented. that it was really, really hard just to watch the film on its own merits. Speaking of its own merits, um, I will never forget in 2003 going to TIFF and seeing the director's cut of Alien by Ridley Scott. And hold on to your hats, kids, because the director's cut was actually shorter than the theatrical <laughs> release. And when somebody asked Ridley Scott how he managed to do that, because it, it, there was actually a scene added. There was a scene that wasn't in the original cut of Alien that was now in there, but it's now shorter and it didn't seem like anything was missing. Somebody ever, somebody asked him, like, how did you do this? How did you turn in a film that's like now under two hours with extra stuff? And he said, I realized in, in re-watching this, I got too in love with sets. And I got too in love with getting in and out of a room to the point where it was always just taking too damn long. This is Villeneuve's problem, at, this, at least in this film and maybe even in, just at this stage in his career. There are a lot of times in Dune where we are just looking at the sand blow and we are taking our sweet time coming in and out of a room and I'm like Denny buddy let's you know two hours 35 minutes let's pick up the pace just a little bit please I like this film I would never go so far as to say I didn't like it I would never go so far as to say it's a bad film but I I'm holding now Villeneuve to a higher threshold of critique because I know what he can do because I know what he can do with scale and because I know what some producers and studios should tell him, don't do that. Uh, so that that's my that's my Dune rant for the show. That's so interesting because I actually love those like long lingering shots. Visually, I thought it was stunning. I love the use of audio in yeah. those scenes. I love the use of negative oh, yeah. space on such a big yeah, yeah. screen. I personally love that. And I also think it was somewhat refreshing from the kind of the dominance of like marvel and dc movies when there's a million there's a million kind of points of interest on the screen at any given time and i just love how he uses minimalism within that but i also hear what you're saying i, I think that was kind of the consistent feedback i heard from other people as well was just kind of the as you said kind of like these long i mean by the time shots. we're done like dune is going to be a five-hour movie and even if it was a four-hour movie that's still a commitment um, to tell, uh, you know, I think that's like a 700-page book, easy. You know, if you're if you're telling a 700-page book over four hours, 
A few moments of lingering in or out of the shot, sure. But over and over and over again, it's like, okay, somebody needed to tell you no. We are just watching the beginning of his career. He's going to do some incredible yeah. things. I'm the guy who counts Sicario as one of his favorite movies. Um, yes. And and I'm I'm you know I'm an, I'm a person who loves his Blade Runner. I, I've got nothing but faith in Denny Villeneuve. I just need the noise turned down yeah. just a little bit. Like I want it dialed from a ten down, just like just down to an eight, and we're okay. <laughs> um, Bob, you're. Not I do have to wonder if this wasn't a uh, another pandemic year, if my top five would look a little bit different. You know, whether it's Dune or, you know, I haven't had a chance to see West Side Story or some of the grander ones. Well, if yeah. I would have a different top five or not, or even some of the ones I've seen, if they would come across different on the big screen. And that's not mm-hmm. to say, like you were saying before, Ryan, I don't like this. You have to see this on the big screen. I can still enjoy a movie mm-hmm. on my TV in my home or even on my laptop, I think. Different, for sure, but I can still enjoy it. I... But I do wonder how that may kind of change those levels, especially... We've all been talking about the uh, the aesthetics of cinema, the sound design, mm-hmm. things like that. That can come across a totally different fashion mm-hmm. of theater. So it's an interesting yeah. question to pose, and Dune would be one of those where, yeah, I'd love to see If I'm going to see it, I'd love to see it in the theater. Am I going to wait for that? No, I'll probably catch it at home before I mm-hmm. end up seeing the theater. I mean, it's hard to say, um, to digress for a moment from our lists here, because one of, my, one of the films that just missed my cut um that is sitting in my number six spot is uh in the heights which is basically built to be a big screen film um to have that sound surround you and to have those numbers play out larger than life um but i i still haven't seen it in a theater i only saw it on my tv and yet it's it's um spectacle it's grandiosity it's very life came through my screen now are there nuances and heightened sensory that i would get if like you know hillary and i for tick boom got to see it in a big screen probably but i don't think it really lessens the experience like this has been a conversation that's been going on about how film lovers of our you know i <laughs> i would say our generation realizing that there's basically a span of three different generations on this call we all saw the wizard of oz for the very first time on a television, probably all three of us, all four of us on a small television. We all saw Lawrence of Arabia on a small television, 2001, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you name it. We all saw them the first time very small and they still hit us double barrel. A good story is a good story is a good story. And yeah, there are things that a dark room and a great big wall can do. But to your point, Bob, of some of these artists who are missing on our list like there was a there was a wes anderson movie this year that none of us are going to bring up there was a steven spielberg movie this year that none of us are going to bring up paul thomas anderson movie that i don't even if we saw but you know like there are there were some big names that got back into the game this year after sitting out a whole 12 months that i think either our tastes have shifted on the taxes a little bit or because some of these smaller films are getting a little bit more prominent where before they used to be really hard to find, we're giving them more attention. I think accessibility is a, is a huge point there. Like the access to these perhaps smaller films is, is more uh, hopefully opened and they're just more accessible. Whereas almost the, the bigger ones, for example, um, like West, West Side Story, which I would love to see, but I know my personal preference, I'd love to see it on the big screen, like yeah. in a theater, so I'm gonna sure, wait sure. to see it. Um, and well, 
Paul Thomas Anderson's was my honorable okay. mention. So I won't get into that. <laughs> but, um, but I totally hear you. I think access is a huge thing, whereas folks who maybe didn't have as much accessibility to get to a cinema uh, now have access expanded to both um, to larger and smaller, like smaller in terms of independently produced films. Um, where, but there's also those issues where some of the larger budget films they're being held back from, uh, like the initial release is being held back from a digital screening. Um, so I think, yeah, access is is really, um, I think, plays a huge part in it. Like you said, and in, in what we're pref what we're kind of prioritizing and seeing right now. It's a very interesting time, um, and, and the last two years have really, really shown. You know, like what is possible? Like some of the best films of last year. Like when we were having this conversation last year, and we were talking about films like Nomadland and One Night in Miami and The Sound of Metal, for a Promising Young Woman. These are not castoffs that just took advantage of nothing in their way. These are incredible pieces of filmmaking that just got clear runway because everybody else just sat mm -hmm. it out. And you know, what did we learn that when these smaller films that kind of play in April and then are completely forgotten by the time these shows come up, what happens when they get some more prominence on these platforms is we're still talking about them a few months later. Um, speaking of one of those types of movies, Bob, another one that just missed my cut is your number two. I watched it for the first time yesterday and wow, did I love the holy heck out of it. Um, let's talk about Come On, Come On. I love this movie. I've watched it twice mm. in the last few days. Uh, I, I watched it with my son as well. And again, you know, I, there, there's a lot of kind of personal connections here just, just because of the subject matter, just watching it with him as well. Um, I'm not even sure where to start with this movie. Start by telling people what it's about, because I fear it's another hey, there, one, it's another one of the films that a lot of people Ryan. didn't quite know about. Yeah, it's by Mike Mills, who made Beginners uh, and 20th Century Woman, and I, I think Thumbsucker from a number of years ago. I think he had one or two films before that as well. The plot is about Joaquin Phoenix, who is an uncle to uh, a, a young boy of, geez, nine or ten. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they actually even mention his age in the movie. Who travels uh, out to Los Angeles to take care of his nephew for a while. His, his mom, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's sister, Gabby Hoffman, has to go and take care of her ex-husband for, for a number of reasons. And then he ends up taking the boy back to New York and also to New Orleans on a little bit of a road kind of a thing because he's a documentary filmmaker. And he's in the midst of interviewing other young kids about their lives and their experiences and their hopes for the future. So it's it's mostly, I guess, about him, you know, reconnecting with his nephew and with his sister. I've seen a few tweets that kind of before I saw the movie saying, "Ah, yeah, big deal. This is a movie about some guy who's like, woe is me, I have to take care of my nephew." And and that's just not what this movie is. This movie is about family connections, this movie is about parenting, this movie is about how you construct memories, how you recall memories, how you share memories. For me anyway, it, it, it just hits so many of these little points, particularly about parenting, about, you know, there's, there's a moment where Gabby Hoffman says, there are times where you can't stand being in the room with this person, you <laughs> want to walk out, you want to strangle them, but you love them more than you can possibly even fathom. And it, boy, that gets to the crux of parenthood really, really fast. Uh, and, and even things like, you know, you will never know everything about your child. And they will never know everything about you. But that's such a bittersweet kind of concept to kind of wrap your head around. 
But beyond all of those kind of things, uh, the you know Joaquin Phoenix is getting lots of uh, kudos for his performance, and rightly so. He's great. Gabby Hoffman is fantastic. I haven't seen her in a while in a movie. Oh, she's so good. The boy in this movie, uh, Woody. I forget his name. I was about to say Woody Herman, but that's right. <laughs> Woody Thomas is so incredible because he's so natural in just being a boy, and he reminded me very much of my own son in, in some ways, not not exactly, but in this sort of um, not creative spark, but this this openness to learning things, this desire to just kind of understand things, this ability to talk and talk and talk and at times uh, there's one moment in the movie where I think Joaquin Phoenix or, or Gabby Hoffman said I had to interrupt him at some point I didn't want to I just wanted to listen to him talk and again for, for me that hit home so much when my son goes into these moments of like talking about something you just want to sit there and just just soak it in and this movie allowed that to happen at times before with the young boy and I, I thought it was just such an amazing personal piece of filmmaking on top of that one of those additional interviews with the other children which you know again remind me of uh, another personal favorite movie um, Correa's After Afterlife where they had actual interviews with real people about their favorite memories and these are I believe real kids that they're talking to about how they see the future what, what their expectations are and things of that nature and it was just so wonderful to hear these different interviews woven into the themes of the movie I, I think it's, it's kind of a masterwork by Mike Mills and, and, and I guess it's because I do it just hits me in so many of those different little personal veins that I absolutely loved it um, I, I could talk about this for hours I think and I've only just seen like a couple of days ago <laughs> um, I thought it was a wonderful piece of filmmaking and I debated on putting number one, but we'll, we'll get to my number one in a bit. Um, I'd love to hear what you thought of it. It was one that lingered on the outskirts of my approach to what I wanted to see. Like this time of year, time is finite. You know, you can you can only see so much. And this is a film that dropped in November. I actually had chances to see it in theaters back when that was a little bit safer to do. Um, but just something always came up, and I always just kind of shuffled it aside, shuffled it aside. And I, I had it in my mind that it was going to be one that I would want to see before this conversation and before these these kind of year, like tying off the year. And while it didn't quite work its way into my top five, it got very, very, very close. We're in one of those years where I could take probably most of my 10 and just reshuffle them and reshuffle them and reshuffle them depending on my mood on any mm -hmm. given day. Like the the this is this has been a really, really good year for cinema there's there's movies that we're not even going to touch that have been incredible in all kinds of genres whether it's comedy whether it's musical whether it's drama prestige pictures you name it like there's going to be a lot left on the floor of this episode um so i'm happy that you actually brought this up because it gave me an excuse to talk about this movie mike mills um is a director i first came across him with beginners um he made a lovely short film a few years ago for one of my favorite bands, The National, and Easy to Find, which is a really beautiful piece with Lee Pace and Alicia Vikander. It's a little bit wonky with its subtitles because you don't always need them. This film is just so tender and it, it, it like it shouldn't work because it should be gimmicky in the black and white and it should be gimmicky in the subtitles, but it's just so interested in having a moment of being honest. The child asks, he asks his uncle, are you married? He says, no. He's like, oh, 
uh, is it because you don't love her? And he's like, no. And, and he's like, well, wait a minute. If you don't love her and you're and you're not married, what happened there? And Joaquin Phoenix has to explain the nature of a relationship coming apart without an inciting incident, which is hard enough to explain to another grown-up sometimes. <laughs> and yet he has to explain it to a child. And he just, he finds a way of doing it so succinctly. There are swirls of her in this movie. There are swirls of beginners in this movie. There are swirls of some of the best modern black and white films in this movie. And what I loved, I think what I loved the most about it is I was worried with 20th century women that Mike Mills was going to start to repeat himself because he was doing a lot of that kitschy, this is the world, this is the president, this is what newspapers look like that he had done in Beginners. So I thought that was going to be like his thing. I'm like, no, 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 no. If you do that every time, I'm going to be, this is going to be a very quick relationship. He was able to approach this story in a much more subtle way and really get into the heart of this relationship, of the relationship of the brother and sister, the relationship of them with their mother. Um, there is a, a, there's another movie that's got talk about grief um, that just seems to be playing on a lot of people's brain as well this year. Um, yeah, this is an amazing film. This notion too, and you, you touched on a bit of, of you know parenting like a long improv exercise. It is, it, it hits that really well because you, you got to go with the flow. You got to pick your spots. You got to be ready for anything. It's not always funny, but sometimes you know you got to be funny, comma when you can period <laughs> which is one of the things that the young boy says and you know i think mike mills actually named the production company after that yeah that statement uh it, it hit home for me in so many ways and, and there's um four different texts that during the movie uh, are are kind of read out loud and, and you see a line on the screen you know this is from kirsten johnson uh who wrote about documentary filmmaking uh and the one that i think most people are going to mention is star child by clara nivola which i'd never heard of but oh, holy crap, is that one, it that hits. was, it's yeah. not a punch to my yeah. gut. It's, it, it's uh, uh, you know, is, is crying at the end of it and say, like, yeah, try and watch that next to your child, man. It's, uh, it was wonderful and beautiful and sad and thick an emotion. And uh, that hit me all at once. It's a wonderful film. You know, and as I, as I think about it a little bit more, what I love about this film is that it is unafraid to say feeling messed up is okay. You know, like he he tells that he tells the he tells his nephew, there are gonna be times where you are gonna look at something and say, "This is messed up. I feel messed up, and it's okay to feel that way." And he uses language that's not messed. He uses a different word, which is fine for him, but I'm choosing not to. Um, but it, like that kind of that kind of honesty wasn't there when any of us were kids. Um, you know, it was always don't feel messed up don't feel sad don't feel angry just you know just suck it up and be a girl be a big girl be a big boy you know the, the, the idea of actually feeling and processing is very very new and this movie embraces that and says you need to feel you need to process otherwise you are going to regret it later um you know for all sorts of reasons um, yeah, Jolie, Hillary, I can't wait for you two to catch up with this movie. Um, you are both going to write some incredible things about it, I'm sure. But yeah, Bob, I'm so grateful that you wrote it up at number two. Um, speaking of movies I'm grateful about, one that I really wanted to get in there but really couldn't because it is longer than two hours. Hillary, <laughs> tell us about the worst person in the world. 
What? Some movies longer than two hours are worth it. I, I, it um, is. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't find the slot. And this, this was one of them. Um, so the worst person in the world, uh, actually in France, was called Julie in 12 Chapters, which is exactly what this movie is about. Um, it's about main character, Julie, which uh, just living her life uh, that is told in 12, like, separate, almost like short films um, with a prologue and epilogue. Um, they explain that to you at the beginning of the movie. Um, <laughs> but it's basically about her just navigating her life at this stage, her relationships. I would, and I think they've described it this way as a dark romantic comedy. It certainly is not, it does have moments of romance. Um, again, it, it deals a lot with expectations and societal expectations of where you should be at your life at a certain time, um, of how we can deal with and feel about failure. Um, and how that sometimes makes us feel like the worst person in the world. Um, I liked that, you know, I think there's this thing that coming of age movies are about teenagers and I think that's shifted. Um, coming of age movies can happen when you're any age. Um, if you're in your 20s or your 30s or even your 40s, we're still sometimes finding where we belong and that's what this movie is kind of about. Um, and there's one chapter in it where she goes to meet this guy and the whole world around her stops. Hmm. And I kind of, that just so well encapsulated what new love is like when everything, doesn't matter what's going on in the world around you, it just shuts down and it's just the two of you. Um, and it was so cinematic in how it dealt with that. And I just, yeah, I adored it from beginning to end. There was one, well, the, there was one chapter I didn't feel fit terribly well which probably stopped this movie from being my number one but the rest of it i loved i am so so annoyed i have not seen this yet i love <laughs> like, he's you know like sid and scanna he's one of those directors where i've seen everything he's done at least i think i love everything he's done and i was so peeved i couldn't see this at tiff um and i, I haven't found it yet i can't wait to see it though for those, if, if there's anyone on, on like who's listening that is going to or virtually or otherwise going to Sundance, it is playing at Sundance in January. There were two films that I couldn't work in that like I, I had earmarked this week that I couldn't work in just in terms of time. This was one of them. What's the the other one? Is the one with uh, Tilda Swinton? Memoriam. That's it. Those those two I wanted to get in this week before we did this show, and I, I really regret not being able to get any one. But hearing you go on about this really makes me want to move that one to the top of the stack. So um, thank you for nudging me in that direction. Again, that's what this show is for. Um, my number two is actually somebody else's number one. So once again, I'm going to take a knee real quick. And we are going to skirt right ahead to the top dogs right after this. Come on back. Let's go be alone Where no one can see us, honey Careful in that room Those parasitic cameras Don't they stop Stare at you We are back. I'm Ryan McNeil. They are Jolie Featherstone, Hillary Butler, Bob Turnbull. It is Matt Nacast 275. We've been wrapping up the year in film 2021 and the time has come to talk about the top films of the year. The way any one person approaches this 
can differ. Um, it can be just what you declare the best. It can be your favorite. It can be the one that left you with that indelible impression when you turned off the TV or closed the laptop or walked out of the theater. It is entirely up to you. I know I have had all of these experiences. Usually the one that hits me the hardest um, is something that kind of speaks to me on some sort of a personal level, not necessarily the one that I declare the best. Everybody's different, and that's why I love getting a bunch of different people for this show. Um, Jolie, you are going to get us started, and congratulations, because you had the one film out of all 18 we were talking about that I hadn't even heard of. I tell people about Laura Samani's Small Body. It's so funny that it, it makes me excited that you hadn't heard of it, because I'm excited to share it with people, but it also makes me kind of sad, because even amongst you know the folks that... I chat with about tip it seemed like hardly anyone had heard about it or seen it which i i think again is exciting so I, I think people are really unaware of uh, of a very uh, special treasure that they'll that they'll get to see but also um just strange that i hadn't really met anyone that's seen it yet um and i i will say just off the top that i completely understand this film may not be for everyone um it certainly I think would be very difficult to watch for someone that may have gone through um, losing a child or a miscarriage or infertility. I completely understand it may not be for them and I kind of want to say that off the top that it it may be helpful for someone that's gone through that or going through that. It, it may be painful so I totally get that. When you talk about leaving an indelible impression, this film stunned me into silence. I had to sit there in silence for a good while after and just kind of process everything that I had witnessed. Um, I believe it is also Laura Simone's uh, debut feature film, which is mind boggling <laughs> to me. Um, it's an incredible epic. It's, it's sort of a, a study in mythology making, I would say. Um, Diana Sanchez uh, wrote about it for TIFF, and she used this word that I, I, I think completely encapsulates it. She called it mythopoetic, and I think that's exactly the perfect word. I don't think I'd even heard that word before, and I was like, that is it. That, that's the word for it. Um, I tend to like, I, I tend to at least find films that I find really interesting in Diana Sanchez's choices, so... Um, I was already kind of intrigued by the film. I saw she had written about it, so I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a go. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. It's, again, very minimalist in its um, in some ways, but again, on a grand, very large, beautiful grand scale. Um, it's set centuries ago in a, in a northern Italian village. Um, and the, essentially, a, a woman loses her child, um, and she embarks on this sort of pilgrimage to um, a place way up in the mountains that supposedly there's sort of like a folklore that they can um, make miracles happen where they can name this child so that they can be baptized. She embarks on this pilgrimage to get there and, and do this. And I think it's, again, it's it's not for everyone, um, but it is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly beautiful. And I think what's really interesting about the story behind it that Laura Simoni talked about was that she's making this mythology and putting this folklore to film based on actual histories that these villagers in northern Italy had already spoken about, about this 
church up in, in the north that was able to perform this miracle. But in the stories, it's usually um, the father that would embark on this journey and, and do this. And she thought that was really interesting. Why, you know, why wasn't the opportunity, I guess, as open to women? And you do, they do kind of touch upon like the, the gender and kind of social like structure of, of the village at the time. Um, and this woman truly is a, a bit of an, an outsider to take on this pilgrimage to do this. So I thought it was incredibly uh, interesting hearing that kind of cultural backstory to it. but. Just overall an incredibly beautiful, beautiful film. Hillary, Bob, Small Body. I have not seen it, wow. nor had I heard of it. So thank you. Well done on your first time of the year end well, show, Jolie. <laughs> I haven't even heard of it. And I, I thought I was paying close attention to Tiff. Totally escaped me, but uh, very curious now. Thank you. When I say this film stunned me into silence, I really mean it. And I, there hasn't been a time where I've forgotten about this film. Like I think about it regularly. And um, yeah, it's... It's very, um, it's almost like she's constructing a fable for all of these uh, women uh, and all of these families that might have gone through this that didn't get the opportunity to do that and were sort of constricted by the kind of like religious and social constructs of their villages uh, at the time. Um, it, to me, it's really she's sort of constructing a, a fable and sort of a, giving these people that history that maybe didn't get that chance. So it, it's beautiful, it's incredible. And this sounds really weird, but when I was watching it, I was sort of thinking of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> There's like this quest element to it. Um, and aside from the scenery, because the scenery is very, you know, grand and, and beautiful and mountainous. But there's this notion of, again, of myth making. And, you know, when you talk about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien wanting to create a mythology for England, I, I truly believe, like in the interview that I watched with Laura Simani, she did want to kind of build this this mythology or this history to kind of pay homage to these these women and these families. So um, I think I personally found it really something special. We were talking earlier about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And when I think about that movie, one of the many things I think about is the scene where they paint the abortion. They, they pick up that little sketch pad and they paint this little rough thumbnail painting of the procedure. And you think about how that is not something that is hanging on gallery walls and that is not something that is printed in art text, art history textbooks because of who mm -hmm. has created the art throughout history. When you tell mm -hmm. me about a movie like Small Body and just reading the capsule description of its plot. And I think to myself, this is not a story I've been told. It hits me, it's like, well, of course not. And this is what I love about where we are at this point in history, is that we are starting to get these stories. We are like, like you say, and like she says, these stories are folklore within a community, but to the world at large, they might as well be rumored. And now we yes. are turning the rumor into folklore because we are giving different people chances at the mic. And it's a beautiful thing. And we are all better for it. I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, there is a sense of homage and respect. I'm looking forward to finding this movie, though, Jolie. I mean, it sounds, I just read the, the short break C about, you know, preventing your child from being stuck in limbo. Um, mm -hmm. Regardless as to what I think about the mythology or, or you know, what it's based on. 
what an amazing idea for a movie of one person trying to prevent that. And talk about talk about stakes, yeah. right? Even like the religion aspect, I guess, aside, I think that yeah, there's something just so incredibly powerful and moving to think about someone being so driven to take that pilgrimage for someone else, um, you know, for her, for her child, I guess. So um, I think that, yeah, there, there's just something so beautiful about it. It is a very, again, I totally get it. it's not for everyone. And and it's one of those things where I, I hesitate because I myself can't personally relate to someone who's who's gone through that. I can't even fathom what that must be like. So I, I kind of hesitate that I don't know if it would be super painful or helpful or unhelpful for someone that's maybe gone through that to watch it. But I just, I love the the idea behind it of someone taking such a beautiful and, and arduous journey to do that. So yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Bob Turnbull, you, for your number one film, are going to take us back to the summer of soul this had to be my number one i mean i i i wrestled like i said before about whether you know come on come on which is a lot more personal in some ways uh but the the joy that came through in summer of soul and, and you know the, the personal touch point here is, is just music right i mean like i think most of us here um consider myself a bit of a music nerd as well um i did not know about the harlem cultural festival of 1969 I, I'm I'm really peeved at myself uh, for not knowing until 50 years after it happened about it that it was essentially the uh, quote unquote the Black Woodstock. Uh, I mean, it wasn't really. It was over I think six consecutive weekends in the summer of '69 and had different kind of musical aspects every weekend, lots of other other things associated with it. But they'd filmed a lot of this, and it stayed in basements unknown for about 50 years until I guess Questlove and other people kind of pulled it out and made this amazing documentary not just of the music of the, the people on stage i'll get to that in a second but of the tenor of the times uh particularly for for for, for black people in 1969 with so much up so many things going on and the, the the sense of i guess purpose that this cultural festival brought to a lot of the people there um I, I i'm not somebody who should really be talking about that in many ways but the movie really really gives you again that sense of place that sense of time that, that sense of feeling um that many of these people must have been going through and it's 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 such a wonderful historical document it's emotional and my god the music is so good um i, I could run down all the artists uh, but highlights you know gladys knight and the pips doing you know uh heard it through the grapevine i've always loved the ccr version of that 10 minutes extended guitar solo the two minutes or so you get here in the movie, it's not just funky. It's just, if you can't move to this song and the way they're doing it, I don't know if you've got a pulse. Like, like, like it's just, it has that beat, that heartbeat to it. Uh, it's just absolutely wonderful. And my goodness, Gladys Knight is just so charming. Uh, um, she just comes across as just owning the stage in, in such a, a charming way. Then you flip that to somebody like Nina Simone, who essentially, I guess, closes out the film. There is this palpable sense of anger, of controlled anger, very controlled anger, uh, and purpose, and desire, and intent in her music. And my God, she's amazing. And I, I already really liked her to begin with. The documentary about her is fascinating. And boy, talk about the cherry on top. Uh, her performance here is, is 
incredible. Uh, I can go down the litany of all the other folks here. The Fifth Dimension, doing Let the Sunshine In. My God, the joy. <laughs> Tell us what you really think, Bob. That's why I had to make this my number one, is regardless of all the other important historical aspects of this, with this may have meant for a very, very large portion of the audience at the time. For me, it's the joy in the music that's coming through. And, and I, I learned a lot too, but the joy of Stevie Wonder doing a kick-ass drum solo, not to mention, you know, killing it in the songs, and Sly and the Family Stone, just, you know, taking people aback at not, not just the, the way they perform songs, but the music itself. Right, and just bringing the, the audience up to another level. Um, man, I can't say enough about it. What I love about films like this is we are getting to a stage where certain artists are no longer artists, they're legend, right? Like you, you mentioned names like Nina Simone, like Stevie Wonder, like the state, like Mavis Staples, and you know, they, they're they are adjectives, they're not, they're not even, they're 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 adverbs, they're not even names and it's you drop into where they are now or you drop into what you heard on a record and you miss this little piece in between that really cements the legend and that is getting to see them in their prime i think of like this is not the same it's the first uh, association i come up with and i think about the first time i watched a movie with barbara streisand young like, I think I watched her in Funny Girl, finally, after just years and years and years of knowing that, like, you know, the baby boomers loved Barbara and I didn't get it. And then I watched her in Funny Girl. I was like, okay, now I get it. So getting to see visual footage of Stevie Wonder just taking no prisoners and playing the drums or getting to see um, Gladys Knights and the Pips, like, when they were just, like, still just coming up. Like I think they, they, they talk yeah, about yeah. that in in this in this documentary about how this was just still them on the ascent, you know. Whereas Gladys Knight now is a legend, right? You you watch them play like not as the headliner, but as like you know the third or fourth act on the day in there. The moment in this movie that I love the most, by far, by far, by far, is one of the singers is Mahalia Jackson, and Mahalia Jackson is a yeah. gospel legend, um, the kind of voice that can like blow the door. The any venue she chooses to sing in and the story goes that she got there on the day and she was she wasn't feeling herself she's like i'm, I'm not gonna be able to hit this one um and, and she yeah she asked mavis staples she's like child i can't sing today i need you to carry the song and you know because mavis gets asked by mahalia jackson she's like well okay and then within the course of the number mahalia starts singing and she just slays and you're like this is her on an off day are you kidding me and it's just so beautiful to see the other thing i love about movies like this is just kind of when the when the when the camera roves the crowd and you could see how people were dressed yeah. and see how they were soaking in the day that kind of thing um yeah i i'm so so happy that quest love got his hands on all this footage and assembled it somebody who cares as much about production and music as Questlove does, um, it's an incredible film. Um, it, it was it was absolutely a joy to watch. Uh, yeah, Bob, it's it's no uh, it's no surprise why this is on the top of your list. I, I wanted in some ways it to be like the Woodstock film. Give me four hours of the concert footage, and I would have loved that. But you know, this is different. This was more than just a concert, right? This is pulling in 
the cultural heritage festival, right? It, it, there's so much more to this, and I'm so glad that Questlove chose to. I'm going to tease you with the concert footage, and I'm going to give you big chunks of it, and you're going to love that. But I'm going to give you a whole lot. There is a is there there is so much more of the interviews and conversations with whether it's like Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, other people who were there at the time and who remember that, and and also other aspects of the Latino culture and the African diaspora sort of coming into everything, like people like Hugh Masekela performing. Um, it, it's it's amazing. It touches on so many different aspects of things in uh, about a two-hour film. So uh, There is a yeah, long conversation people. in the middle of this movie about one of the nights of the Harlem Music Festival happening the same night that Neil Armstrong was landing on the moon. And, you know, everybody who's gathered there, like, they ask them, they're, they're like, what do you think about America landing on the moon tonight? And they're all like, how does this help me? Hearing that answer over and over and over, you would think it's jaded or it's cynical or it's something. But when you consider what life was like for this audience at this time in history in America, and you hear them say, how does this help me? What does this do for me? What do I care? You're like, yep, uh, that is the correct answer. Sir or madam, you're absolutely right. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's an incredible moment in human history and there could be far more greater things that we could be doing down here than sending Whitey to the moon. Uh, thank you, Bob. I'm, I'm definitely going to watch that again after I watch all of the homework that you have all set in front of me, of course. Um, but I'm definitely going to check that one again. Um, Hillary Butler, your number one was my number two, so that's why I uh, took a powder and decided to come back around to it. Uh, let us talk about the absolute masterpiece that is Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. Yeah, I feel like this movie has already won so many awards that my number one slot really means very little to it. This will um, be what puts it over the top, I predict. <laughs> but, but man, uh, so well-deserved. I mean, from top to bottom, when you're talking about this film, the writing, the score again by Johnny Greenwood, as mentioned before, the cinematography by uh, Ari Wagner is spectacular. Um, New Zealand is standing in for Montana um, in this film. Um, if you told me at the beginning of the year that I would be naming a Western movie as my top film of the year, I would have laughed at you because it is not a genre that I gravitate to at all. Um, I can't even name you really other Westerns <laughs> that I've really liked. And if you told me that it was one that was going to star Benedict Cumberbatch as a sadistic, terrifying cowboy, um, I would also have not believed you. So this movie surprised me in a lot of ways, and not just for its little kind of twist ending. Um, it was not so much of a twist, I guess you can see clues along the way, but I love the ending of this film and I'm not going to spoil it, but it is a slow burn, don't get me wrong. Um, you have to sit with this movie. And it is one, I will say, like as you're uh, conversing about seeing films in the theater and at home, I'm glad I saw this in a theater um, because the slow burn of it, I think, would have maybe, maybe pick up my phone or get distracted. You need to like shut the world out when you watch this movie and enjoy it for every beautiful moment that's on screen and uh, you know every beautiful moment of the music um, and taking every bit of dialogue and what people are are saying um, is very very important to your enjoyment of this movie so i will say that it is a slow burn you have to stick with it it is a hundred percent worth it it is this vast epic film that also looks at 
again, expectation, stereotype, um, and also like toxic masculinity. It's a right out there. Um, so yeah, I, I loved it for all of those reasons. Jolie Featherstone. No! I have not seen it. I really want to see it. I just haven't been able to yet. Well, when you do, turn everything else yes, off. Yeah, and just be with it. Yeah, I like it a lot. I, I don't think I, it resonated with me as much as with um, um, Ryan and Hillary, and I'm not sure why. Um, I was not bored. It is slow, you know, but in a good in a good way. Um, I, I I I love the idea of using this kind of jar to take on the whole toxic masculinity. I love the sort of little pivot it kind of does with that. Um, I, for whatever reason, uh, Benedict's performance was a little off for me. I know many people praise it, and that's fine, but it, it just... It, I, don't, I, I don't know, Ryan. I, I can see you making hand gestures. <laughs> it didn't... Uh, for whatever reason, it brought attention to itself for me. And also, just the, the sheer awfulness of his character um, was initially just kind of like, he's too awful. And okay, so I guess you're going for a satire of some kind. And I, and again, I, I guess I just couldn't find my way into the movie until about halfway. And then I did. And it's like, ah, now, now I think I get it. And the rest work, you know, kind of like gangbusters. But I think that hurt it for me for the first part of it. Um, but um, where it went, I, I think what it was saying, the other performances were amazing. I wish I'd seen this in the theaters because, oh my goodness, is this gorgeous. Um, and you know, it's, it's main metaphor. I love the way it kind of settled on that at the end. So there's so many great things about it. It just, it, it didn't hit those upper echelons for me just because of the way it's, I guess it, it kind of kicked in. One of the things I like about this movie, just on a pure entertainment value is the movie tells you what it's going to do very clearly. And it just, it just begs you to pay attention. You know, like it, it's not pulling some kind of a weird rabbit out of a hat as you are as, as you are walking along it basically says look there's a rabbit and you need to remember oh there's the rabbit because the rabbit is going to be important later and you're going to want to remember that i just pointed you towards a rabbit and then it just it takes you so many other places both overtly and subtly that you damn near forget about the goddamn rabbit <laughs> until you get to the end of the movie and it's like oh wait what happened to the rabbit this movie uh i talked about how a lot of my films on my list talked about identity and that's all over this movie in terms of what it means to what it mean what it is ever meant to be a man certainly what it meant to be a man back in this time um mm -hmm. you know you have two men at its center one who presents slightly effeminate one who presents ultra macho one of them is very much not uh, how he is presenting. The other one, we don't actually know. Jane Campion just does such an incredible job of getting into the heart and soul of this story. I, I can't imagine anybody else telling it. Um, I, I don't know what she was doing with her career for the last 12 years, aside from Top of the Lake, but I'm glad that she took the time that she needed to come back with a story like this. It is an unbelievable movie that I've seen twice now and just love so goddamn much. I can't believe just how incredible this movie is. I'm glad that you liked it as much as I did. I almost liked it number one. Almost. And I would have liked it number one if one more movie hadn't come out this year that 
just did so many things that I had never seen before. Uh, Hillary, this should not surprise you. <laughs> no, You're laughing already. <laughs> yeah, Bob and Jolie will probably get there in a second. My number one film of the year comes from France. It is Julia Ducourneau's Titan film about so many things, so very many things. All of the things. All really. of the things. Yeah, th this is the most movie that ever movied. I left this movie floored. Like you guys were talking about seeing Dune at the Cinesphere. I saw this movie at the Cinesphere. I saw this movie six stories high and I just did not know what to make of it at the end. There are, there are moments in this movie that are going to live in my memory forever. There are moments in this movie that I want to rewatch over and over because I'm still not sure I got them. This is a movie that very, very, very easily in the hands of a lesser artist could have been the movie where the woman strips a car. And the fact that this is not the movie where the woman strips the car just says so much about how sweet it is, how loving it is. Um, it, it, it's a Midnight Madness movie at TIFF that is just so beyond the bounds of what that program usually brings. Um, again, talks about identity. Again, talks about masculinity, femininity, uh, sexuality. There is so much going on in this tidy little package. Um, it is by far the most indelible movie I have seen the last 12 months. I could not help but put it number one. Hillary, you and I watched it just one week ago. You were actually really nervous about what you might be getting into. What do you think of, you know, it didn't make your top five. But what do you think of Titan? I think Ryan had more fun watching my slapjawed face uh, while he was watching it with me than re-watching the movie again. Um, Look, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. I don't know that I got it. <laughs> um, let me put it this way. I really did like how she played with like gender in this movie and the fluidity of it. Um, I feel like she has a lot more to say about that. I love some of the visuals. It is very bizarre. Yeah. Um, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah. Um, which is, <laughs> She's like, yes, Ryan. <laughs> which is where maybe I just felt a little bit that it was less accessible to me. Okay. Um, but you do sure. have to suspend your belief a little bit. Like, a little bit? All of the belief there watching go. this movie. But I know that I should probably hand my critics card back. No, no, that's not what this is about. For that opinion. It's not what this uh, is about, Jolie Featherstone. I still haven't seen it yet, unfortunately. Hillary's got a, Hillary's got a copy that she can buy. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, I, I'm super excited to see it. So I'll get back to you when Bob, I Bob, I'm pretty sure you saw this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I loved it. Um, Hillary's not wrong in, in, in a lot of things she said. I mean, the... The way it plays with gender and the fluidity and all that, I, I think it's fantastic. It's one of its core themes. But there's like three or four different movies in here. Again, really not a bug. That's a feature. Oh, yeah. Well, no, no exactly. <laughs> I agree with you completely on that. That's a good thing. Because if it was just about one of those things, it could actually probably still have been very good in, in her hands. But it, it, it just took you so many different ways. I was all set to follow this serial killer woman at the start to see where she was going. And then that stopped and she's in a firehouse. And then that took a bit of a I was a down turn. for the serial killer then, movie. I, I just want to say, I was down for that. I'm not a horror. I was, totally I was down, down for, that. for that part. <laughs> but I was totally happy with what I got too, because it did play with all those different kind of themes. 
in ways that I did not expect. And it's not just that this is one of those, oh, crazy, crazy movies. I, I'm not even sure Midnight Madness is really the right place to put this movie. But it just circumvented every single expectation you had along every step of the way. You know, and you know, the the uh, the party and the fire station with every all the men <laughs> dancing and then where that kind of goes is definitely an indelible scene, not because it's crazy or there's a certain image, but because of how it shifts and how she uses all those kind of gender expectations of, of the people within the film as well. Um, so I think it's remarkable from many of those standpoints. Certainly not what I expected, uh, but I'm really happy with what I got. We've all been doing this a while, and I, I still want to be surprised when I sit down to watch a movie. Like, don't get me wrong, when I sit down to watch a brand or when I sit down to watch a story that I already know, I just, you know, just play the hits and do what you want to do. But every time I start a movie, I really do want to come away seeing something new, seeing something different, or seeing even just seeing something from a different angle that I've never considered before. This movie had the most something new in it uh, and most new angles in it that just stuck with me so well that it, again, just on its surface, it should not work. It's just, it's ripping off several other concepts, like everything from Crash to the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to Clockwork Orange. Like there is a lot of other movies in this movie and yet it's not like any of them. Julia DeCourneau, this is her second feature after Raw. Both of these movies just hit you right in the chest, wait for you to get back up, and then hit you in the chest again. You would think that that would not be an enjoyable experience, and yet I just keep getting up and keep telling her, hit me again, please. Um, I, I, I love this storyteller. I love this story so very much. This is not going to be a movie for everybody. I know, like, you know, Hillary, you did amazing with it. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I told you going in that it actually wasn't going to be as weird or as heavy or as scary as you thought it was going to be. Like, and, and I think that that's, that is fair. It's, you know, it's not necessarily the kind of movie that I think that you gravitate towards. Bob, to your point, this is actually exactly the kind of movie that I wish Midnight Madness would start working into their batch of 11. Like they've got a very, very small slot that they can work with. Like I think of all the programs, they've got the smallest tally to work with. So they kind of have the smallest margin of error. And I really wish they would start using one, two, three of their, their picks on movies that are a little bit more syncopated like this movie is it's not that weird when you get right down to it this is dealing with these very personal kind of interesting issues about gender about family relations and other things just in a, in a slightly different way than many <laughs> other films would approach it and then it gets real weird again at the end <laughs> yeah yeah it does. yeah <laughs> there's that jolie is over there going like what the hell are you guys trying to talk me into I am so excited for this <laughs> weird and wonderful, crazy film. I love it. You're in for something. You're in for something. <laughs> I, I wish numbers weren't as high as they were. I, I do exactly what I do with Hillary. I just come over to your place and watch it with you and just watch reactions. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, that was that was my film of the year. But um, any of these, Small Body, Summer of Soul, Power of the Dog, Tan, you throw on any of these movies, you are in for an incredible night. It was, it was really a fantastic year 
at the cinema, even if it wasn't a fantastic year outside. That is episode 275 of the Matinee Cast. I am so very thankful that Jolie, Hillary, and Bob were able to come by. Come on back on January 17th for episode 276. I think we might talk about licorice pizza uh, episodes going into the new year. are going to get a little bit weird uh, because numbers and access, but... Uh, we made a whole year of shows work, so hopefully we can just kind of keep on moving. Bob is no longer doing his regular writing spot, but Bob, if people want to harangue you on Twitter, where can they find you? I believe I'm still at at the Very logical good. And you, you were saying that you're going to get a little bit more active on uh, Letterboxd, yeah? Oh, okay. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I probably <laughs> Um, Hillary, if people want to read your fantastic writing, where can they find you? I do most of my writing. At, I think I had 75 reviews up this year, which is a new record for me. So wow. that's good. Uh, at uh, liveforfilms.com. And I am at uh, petdochill on Twitter. Very nice. Julie Featherstone, where can people find your wares? <laughs> they can find my wares. So if you go to my Twitter, at tofilmfiles, there's a link to my blog. Otherwise, you can see me writing for Wiley Very cool. Writes. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If you happen to use a pod catcher of choice that I have not named, let me know. I'll put my show there too. Feedback on any of the films we talked about today, any of the points we brought up today, or anything else can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca, and there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, anyone? 2022 is coming. That's <laughs> the end of this year. <laughs> and that might be a good thing. Funny, you just mentioned Facebook, and I, all I can think of is let the dark harvest begin. <laughs> For Bob, Joe Lee, and Hillary, I'm Ryan. Have a happy and safe new year. We'll see you at the matinee.